0: conducted what might be history's most profitable act of piracy, who not only was the focus of the world's first ever recorded international manhunt, but also got away with everything. In 1695, every led a raid on a Mughal treasure fleet and captured a staggering amount of wealth estimated to be worth as much as 120 million US dollars today. And it was this, as you might imagine, that kicked off the aforementioned world's first ever recorded international manhunt. A massive bounty was put on Every's head and people from all around the world searched far and wide for him. But even so, they never found him. And Every managed to be one of the very few famous pirates from history that actually lived to enjoy his ill-gotten gains, as you'll discover. We love a bit of naval history here on the show, a bit of of piratical history, terrific, and it's got all the half ass history classics. We've got blood and guts and horrible murder, we've got mutiny, betrayal, looting and plundering, can't wait to get into it. However, Every's tale isn't just a romantic story of swashbuckling on the high seas, despite how he's been depicted in popular media both back then and today. Um, even in his time, Every was celebrated as, as an infamous and legendary figure portrayed as a, as a lovable rogue who stole from the rich the sort of, you know, Robin Hood or Ned Kelly character archetype that we all love so, mu- so much. But the reality, I have to say, is a little different. For one, Every spent at least some of his naval career in the slaving industry. Uh, and secondly, his crew committed horrific atrocities. Uh, against the people they attacked while while pirates. So as much as we are going to enjoy a tale of daring exploits, of a, of a mighty pirate king, we also are not going to skip over the darker sides of every story. Anyway, before we begin, thanks go to alert listener Brett Hasler for this terrific suggestion. Good to get back into a bit of pirate history. Thanks, Brett, mate. But let's get to it here. Let's get across the story of Henry Every Warts and All and how he managed to pull off the biggest piratical heist in history and how he managed to live to tell the tale. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to uh, well, not one hundred percent sure for for reasons uh, that we've actually come across before on this podcast. Given the nature of Every and his career, given the the, the sensational way in which his life story was told and retold and fictionalized and. And generally dressed up as the 18th century equivalent of clickbait, um, it is quite hard to pick apart the truth from the convenient and compelling fictions that people have devised over the years. Uh, there are several biographies of Every that were written to cash in on, on his name at the height of his infamy, and some of these biographies are just like completely made up, Um to, to sort of illustrate this point, there's even confusion about what his name was. Uh, to history, he's not known as Henry Every, but Henry Avery. But he himself referred to him, he, he, his name, as far as he was concerned, was Henry Every. That's how he signed his name. Um, but then he's also known to history by the nickname Long Ben. Apparently, he was quite a tall bloke. So there you go. And on top of that, he had other aliases that he went by as well. So that, I mean, even just nailing down what this guy's name was isn't as simple as you might think. I've done my best in researching every I've done what I can to separate the truth from the tall stories. But you'll you'll have to forgive me if I get something wrong, because there is so much conflicting information out there about this bloke. So much stuff that people just invented because it made for a better story. So keep that in mind as we continue. But uh, look, the best guess that we have for when every was born uh, to begin your story here. Is in August 1659 in Devon, England, down in the southwest corner. And uh, we, don't, we don't actually have too many other details about his childhood or his family. His parents may have been named John and Anne, according to some local records. But again, it's not 100%. In fact, we don't really know much about the beginning of his naval career. There are stories about him joining the, uh, the English Royal Navy at the age of 12, sailing to places like North Africa and the Caribbean, But how true these stories actually are is, is again, up for debate. Um, The first time that we can reliably place every uh, is in 1689. Every is pushing 30. We really don't know much about the years of his life before this point. Uh, anyway, 1689, just after the beginning of the Nine Years' War. This is where England, Scotland, the Holy Roman Empire, Spain, the Dutch and others all fought against the expansionist Bourbon French. Uh, this is a different Nine Years' War, to the one that we talked about in episode 182, Get Across It. That one is all already almost a century old. Anyway, 1689, we have concrete records of Every working as a midshipman on a British warship, the HMS Rupert. Uh, And from this piece of information, we can start to make an educated guess about his career before then. Although, again, we are just in the realm of of speculation here. But as a midshipman in his 30s, it's likely that Every had begun his career as a sailor at an early age and then worked his way through the ranks to become a low-ranking officer, right? Right midshipmen were junior officers and a lot of them were very young because they were born into noble or wealthy households and essentially bought their way into office, officer positions on ships like this. So if you're an older midshipman, it tended to mean that you were of, of, a, of a lower social standing and you worked your way up through the ranks to get to this point. And this is the conclusion that we can reasonably accurately draw about his career thus far. Anyway, he continued uh, work in the Royal Navy for a few more years. He went on to be promoted further to master's mate or sub-lieutenant, as the rank would go on to be known later on. Um, And as a master's mate, he saw action in a few battles here and there before finally leaving his military career behind him in 1691. However, I'm sorry to say that at this point, he chose to take up one of the most morally reprehensible occupations in human history when he became a slaver. Between 1691 and 1693, Avery worked on slave ships, and he was known to be a ruthlessly efficient and unflinching slaver. We don't have too many details about this part of his life, but we do know that for two years he was part of the horrors of the Atlantic slave trade. We do know this happened, and we can say with, with certainty that it is an irredeemable stain on his legacy. In 1693, however, I'm happy to say that Every made another career change, this time entering into the world of privateering. Privateers, as you may remember from previous episodes, were just essentially state-sanctioned pirates, sailors who were given permission by an, by a realm to attack another realm's ships. Um, and in 1693, a joint venture between the English and the Spanish, who were allied against the French, remember, saw four warships out, outfitted with the intention of sailing to the Caribbean to loot and plunder French interests over there, as well as support the Spanish in the region and, most excitingly, recover lost treasure from shipwrecks. Now, this venture never actually made it to the Caribbean, as, as we'll talk about. And uh, one of the ships took a very unexpected detour, thanks to every. Uh, but let's get into it here and talk about what uh, whatever he got up to from 1693 onwards. Every joined up with hundreds of other sailors and became a part of this joint venture between the English and the Spanish and thanks to his long naval career Every was made a first mate uh, a senior officer on one of the ships and and to begin with morale on these on these four ships was very high the sailors had received generous pay in advance they'd been promised similarly generous pay in the future and the idea of cutting about in the Caribbean, giving the French a good kicking and and diving for lost treasure. I mean, it sounded like a lot of fun. However, the expedition did not get off to a good start and only went from bad to worse. After what what should have been a two-week journey, right, from England to Spain to kick off the voyage, after this journey took five months rather than two weeks, the ships were then stuck in the Spanish port town of Corona, for the very worst of reasons, red tape. The Spanish government didn't have everything ready for the ships to depart Spain. They were waiting on documents and paperwork and other nonsense. And so the ships were stuck in Coruna for yet more months. The ships left London to begin this expedition in August 1693. And by May 1694, they're still stuck in Spain. And the sailors, as you can imagine, have had a gutful. Their employees aren't paying them because they know that if they do, all the sailors will just take the money and run. Uh, And so all these poor sailors, they're essentially being held prisoner with the promise of paying, hanging over their heads to make them stay. And uh, after a number of months, by the time we get to May, certain whispers begin to make their way around the people, the the, the crew of these ships. The the sort of whispers that strike fear into the hearts of naval authorities everywhere. The sort of whispers that tend to make for very bloody good episodes of a Tin Pot History podcast, whispers of mutiny. And at the heart of these whispers, at the heart of this mutiny was Henry Every. And this was for a couple of reasons. Every was a senior officer, you'll remember. He was a first mate, but he also, he wasn't high born. He wasn't an aristocrat. He wasn't from one of those wealthy or noble families that I was talking about before, He was of common birth and he had worked his way up through the ranks over decades of being in in the maritime industry. And this meant that he was the perfect choice as a leader of the mutiny. Not only was he a high ranking officer, he was also very much in touch with a common man, someone who the crew considered that they could trust as he was still, you know, quote unquote, one of them. And besides, every seemed very keen on the idea of mutiny himself. It's not like he was reluctant. He went between the four stranded ships, recruiting willing sailors and plotting as to how the mutiny would actually take place. And uh, after this time had been spent plotting and planning and getting everything ready, with everything in place on the night of the 7th of May 1694, Every and the men that he had recruited put their plan into action. They boarded one of the ships, the Charles II, which was under the command of Captain Charles Gibson. uh, And they chose their time to seize this ship very well indeed, because not only was the commander of the entire expedition away on shore, but Captain Gibson, the bloke in charge of the the Charles II, this ship, he was in bed, crook as a dog, right? Right. And so this meant that there was no one to enforce discipline and rally the crew against the mutineers. The Charles II was captured without conflict or bloodshed as this mutinous band of sailors took control of the ship, essentially unresisted. And every at the helm gave the order for the Charles II to sail away at top speed, even as some of the other ships opened fire on it. But the mutineers got away safely out away from Corona. Whenever he judged the uh, the ship to be in the clear, he actually he actually did something quite decent. Uh, he ordered the ship to be taken back towards the shore, and he gave every sailor on board the choice to part ways and leave the the, the mutineers in their ship. He gave them all the chance to join up and go off with them on their adventures, or be left ashore with no hard feelings. And as many of the sailors aboard the Charles II had had nothing to do with the mutineers and didn't want to run the risk of being punished for mutiny, much of the crew actually took Every up on this offer and left the ship and stayed ashore. Some stories even tell us that Every offered Gibson the chance to return to commanding the ship if he would switch sides and, and join the mutiny, but no. Gibson wasn't to be turned, so he remained behind as well with the rest of the loyal crew. However, I will say there was one crew member who wanted to leave but wasn't allowed to, wasn't allowed to disembark and go on shore. Uh, He was forced to come along with the mutineers, and this was the ship's surgeon, as every decided that it was too important for them to have a a surgeon aboard. Uh, And so that poor bugger, for one, was dragged along against his will. Anyway, with only mutineers remaining and the surgeon, I suppose, a a proper vote was held to choose who would be the captain of the ship. And surprise, surprise, every won the vote unanimously with all 80 or so sailors voting for him. And he proposed that the crew take to a life of piracy. This was not a particularly hard sell either because, I mean, first of all, the original expedition to the Caribbean had essentially involved just piracy. Piracy, privateering against the French, um, but another reason that probably would have swayed the crew towards piracy was a famous story that was circulating at the time about the pirate Thomas Tew, sometimes known to history as the Rhode Island pirate. Uh, Tew had taken a massive score just recently on the Red Sea. Only a couple of years, uh, a couple of years previously. And this story of the untold riches that Chew managed to seize as a pirate doubtless encouraged the mutineers to embrace the prospect of piracy and the riches that it might bring them. So with the crew in agreement, every proposed sailing not to the Caribbean, but instead around the southern tip of Africa so they could seek their fortune in the Indian Ocean. And the crew agreed. They renamed the ship Fancy rather than Charles II, and they began their voyage south. On the way to the Cape of Good Hope, Every and the crew of the Fancy, they stopped here and there along the way, robbing ships and settlement, bringing on new crew who agreed to join and uh, also, unfortunately, uh, taking less willing people on as slaves. Um, At one point on the journey south, they careened the Fancy, that is deliberately running it aground for repairs. But they also reseed it. Now, reseing a ship involves cutting away excess parts of the ship's structure, usually just removing a deck, right, in order to make it lighter and therefore faster. And this is exactly what the, the crew of the Fancy did. They cut away, they removed a the deck, they cut away at much of the ship. Uh, and after the Fancy was reseed, it was unbelievably quick. It was more or less as fast as any other ship at the time could possibly hope to be, which is a very bloody good thing when you're a pirate vessel, obviously, because not only do you need to be able to chase down the ships that you want to attack and loot and plunder, but you also need to be able to run away from the ships that want to chase you down. So now, as I say, the fancy, just about the quickest vessel on any of the seven seas, and by early 1695, uh, Every and his crew had rounded the Cape of Good Hope at the southern tip of Africa. Uh, they stopped off in Madagascar in order to take on some supplies. Uh, and along the way, of course, they had attacked and looted and pillaged other ships that come across. But by the time they reached the Comoros Islands to the north of Madagascar, the Fancy had a crew of 150 people and a fair whack of treasure in the hold, let me tell you. Although... Of course, this is nothing compared to what is coming up in Every's future, which is what we're going to talk about right now, right? Every's plan on the Commerce Islands, the plan he came up with, was to sail to Perim Island, a small island in the Strait of Mandeb, the entrance to the Red Sea between Africa and the Middle East. It was in the Red Sea that Thomas Tew had taken his massive prize a few years ago, but Every had his eye on something even bigger. There was talk of a Mughal treasure fleet, the richest fleet the world had ever seen. 25 ships with holds full to bursting with untold treasure. This fleet was undertaking a pilgrimage to Mecca, a Hajj, and was carrying with it an absolutely spectacular amount of wealth, making itself a very juicy target for pirates everywhere. In fact, every wasn't the only one hoping for a go at this treasure fleet. No, after reaching the, uh, the Straits of Mandeb, he joined forces with five other pirates, all sharing the same goal, one of whom was actually, as it happens, none other than Thomas Chew, the bloke that I mentioned before. Every, um, who out of these other pirates, had the biggest and fastest ship with the most guns and largest crew. Every was elected admiral of this new pirate fleet. And so in preparation for what lay ahead, he drew up battle plans. He gave orders to the, to the other pirate captains and then positioned his new armada to lay in wait for the Mughal treasure ships. After a couple of weeks waiting like this, at long last, the Mughal ships were finally spotted. And while they were spread out from one another, making them much easier to attack, some of these ships were absolutely enormous in size. The largest, Ganj-i-Sawai, had 80 cannons, almost twice the Fancy's forty-six, and a total crew of 1,000 100 people, including 400 musket armed Marines. And so naturally, this was the ship that Every pursued. Not all his fleet could keep up with the fancy and poor old Thomas Chew met his end in a scrap with one of the other Mughal ships. But nonetheless, Every powered on after the Ganji Sawai, attacking other Mughal ships as he gave chase and looting one of them, the Fatih Muhammad, seizing around 12 million US dollars in treasure. But that, my friends, was small potatoes compared to the mighty Ganj i sawai which, which Fancy eventually caught up with on the 7th of September 1695. Now, the Fancy might have been quick, but Ganj Isawai sawai was absolutely massive, bristling with cannons and filled with heavily armed men ready to defend it to the death. It was a very courageous fight to pick, or just perhaps a very bloody foolish one, or maybe both. But the Fancy bore down on the Gungi Isawai under the command of Captain Every and battle commenced. Now, I don't want to take too much away from Every here, the bloke had guts, you've got to admit that. But one of the reasons this fight went the way that it did is because he also had a fair old slice of very good luck. For instance, his first broadside took down the mainmast of the ganj i leaving it completely unable to manoeuvre or escape. A very lucky outcome, as broadsides were hardly surgically aimed. And then, as the uh, as the battle continued, one of the ganj i biggest cannons just exploded. I don't know why. I couldn't find out why. I don't know if it was because it backfired or, or it was damaged uh, in, in, a, in a broadside from every ship or what it was. But this gigantic explosion as this cannon blew up further damaged the Ganges Hawaii and set much of the ship on fire. So now those 400 Marines that are supposed to be defending the ship are instead scrambling to put out the blaze and, you know, avoid being burnt to a crisp themselves. And in this chaos and confusion... Every's men swung across to board the Ganji Sawai, scaling its sides and attacking the defending crew, where they were soon joined by other pirates from one of the other ships that had sailed with Every. The hand-to-hand fighting was fierce and it was protracted. It lasted several hours, but once the clash of steel had quietened and the haze of smoke had cleared, the blood-soaked pirates led by Henry Every were triumphant. And the Ganj Isawai was theirs. And it's here that I'm sorry to say that these pirates did not conduct themselves like the lovable rogues that we tend to think of pirates as being. No. Instead, they tortured and abused those left alive on the Ganj Isawai, men and women alike committing all manner of horrific atrocities on these poor people. I'm not going to go into detail. It is about as bad as you can imagine. And over the coming days, the pirates didn't just strip the Ganji away of its riches. They also behaved absolutely monstrously towards the defeated foes. It is not a nice part of the story, but it did happen. And I don't think it should be forgotten about or ignored or swept under the rug just because it disrupts an exciting tale about swashbuckling pirates. But in any case, once the pirates had finished their looting, looting and plundering and, and all the barbarous behaviour that went with it, once all the treasure had been seized, it was divided between the two pirate vessels involved in the attack on the Gangesawai, and then every and his crew sailed away in the fancy its hold groaning under the weight of its pillaged treasure, and they set out for the island of Bourbon, today known as Reunion, east of Madagascar. And there the crew of the Fancy properly tallied up their taking, which, as I mentioned before, might have been the richest haul ever captured by any pirate in history. It's difficult to accurately estimate how much treasure was taken by the pirates. It's uh, it's tricky to take the value of, of old currencies and wealth and figure out what it's worth in today's terms. But estimates of how much every stole range from between 60 million US dollars and 120 million US dollars. So no matter what, it is an absolutely huge amount of money. Each sailor aboard the Fancy was given a share of the treasure that roughly equaled around 1,000 pounds in the money of those days. Uh, which is around 200,000 US dollars in today's terms. That is more money than most sailors would have made in an entire lifetime back then. Um, And the remainder of the money was, sadly, used to buy slaves, around 90 of them. And and this was done for two reasons. Firstly, the slaves would be made to do all the hard labour on the ship, making its next voyage easier for the rest of the crew. And secondly, as awful as this is, uh, this was actually a form of money laundering. Every knew that the consequences of this attack wouldn't be minor. He knew that he and his crew would be relentlessly hunted, not just by the Mughals, but also by the English after this gargantuan raid. And while he and his crew were now impossibly rich, the form that their wealth took was actually very damning evidence of their crimes, They were carrying currency that could very easily be traced back to the Mughals. And why would a ship filled with European sailors be carrying around vast amounts of Mughal money? The slaves, however, could be bought with Mughal money in that part of the world and then sold later for a different local currency without anyone being any the wiser. So these poor enslaved people were actually actually being used, as I said, for money laundering. Anyway, Every proposed to his crew that they flee the Indian Ocean and travel far, far away, this time to the Caribbean, and specifically to Nassau in the Bahamas. The crew agreed once again, and so set sail, laden down with riches, hoping to find a quiet corner of the world where they could spend their new wealth without any unwanted attention. Because as you can imagine, this brazen act of piracy, stealing uncountable riches from the Mughal treasure fleet, it generated a lot of attention. I'm sure it didn't factor into Every's decision to attack the treasure fleet, but let me tell you this. He chose his moment for this attack very poorly indeed when it came to the world of international relations. The English were already on a very uneasy footing with the Mughal Empire because of what the English East India Company had been getting up to in the Mughal sphere of influence. Uh, In 1690, for instance, the Mughal Empire had given the East India a damn good thrashing in the so-called Child's War, uh, so named not because it was fought by children, but because the main English commander was a guy named Joseph Child. Um, And generally speaking, the the characteristically poor behavior of the East India Company had pissed off the Mughals uh, to the point that relations between the Mughals and the English really aren't at their best. Um, And now on top of this. This English upstart, Henry Every, has robbed the Mughals of a colossal fortune before just sailing off into the sunset. And to make the situation even worse, the Mughals caught wind of the atrocities committed against those aboard the Ganji Sawai, and so they were absolutely furious with the English. In the Mughal city of Surat in modern-day India, English citizens were locked up, partly to send a message to the English, but also partly to protect those English citizens themselves because people were rioting in the streets at the news of what had happened on the Gungi Sewai, and those English people probably would have been torn limb from limb had the uh, the rioters got their hands on them. But the Mughal emperor, Aurangzeb, the same bloke we met in episode 241, History's Weirdest Deaths Part 3, Get Across It, uh, the fellow who had some dissidents boiled, burnt and sawed in half, you'll remember him, He's spinning chips. He's furious. He moved against the East India Company in retribution. He closed their factories. He locked up their staff and threatened to attack English settlements on the subcontinent unless the English did something to address this situation. And it might surprise you to learn that the English government responded with total and complete remorse and penitence. Very unusual for them. They apologised profusely. They promised that the English East India Company would pay reparations for the the stolen treasure and then went ahead and put a massive £1,000 bounty on Every's head again. This is much more than most people back then could reasonably expect to make in an entire lifetime. Now, this swift response from the English placated the Mughals. It showed them that the English were taking the situation seriously and so open conflict between the two was averted for now. But with such a massive price on Avery's head, history's first ever international manhunt began. People all around the world were searching for him in earnest, hoping to snag this bounty for themselves, and the English were at the forefront of the search for this bloke. They were looking all across the Indian and the Atlantic Ocean, specifically in the Atlantic Ocean. There had been rumours of Every fleeing across the Atlantic, rumours that, of course, Proved to be true. Every had indeed sailed across the Atlantic to the Bahamas, as I mentioned. And when he arrived in Nassau, he used some of the limitless wealth that he had to bribe the governor there, an English bloke whose name was Sir Nicholas Trott. Now, Trot wasn't in a good position in 1696 by the time every arrived. His tiny town of Nassau had less than 100 men defending it. The English Royal Navy hadn't stopped by in years. And worst of all, the French were expanding their sphere of influence across the Caribbean. And so for these reasons, when over 100 sailors who were both very well-armed and very wealthy turned up in his port, and when their captain, a man who called himself Benjamin Bridgman, came forward... Confessing that they were unlicensed traders hiding from the East India Company, Trot decided to swallow what was a very obvious lie without a second thought. He took their bribes gratefully and was very glad to have an armed warship docked in his harbour just in case the French came poking about with any funny ideas. But look, there was... No way he didn't know these blokes were pirates. Hordes of currency from the other side of the world, a hold full of obviously plundered goods, a ship that had very obvious signs of having been damaged in battle. But still, Trot turned a blind eye to it all, perhaps very sensibly, really, because if push came to shove, he probably couldn't have defended the town from the pirates had they decided to attack instead. So all was well for a while. The pirates hung out in Nassau, enjoying the sunshine, a bit of R&R, slapping each other on the back for having gotten away with nicking a king's ransom. Uh, They actually scuttled the fancy. Uh, It was just a big floating piece of evidence against them and settled in to enjoy a bit of tropical paradise in the Bahamas. But then two different problems arose that meant that the pirates had to move on. One problem came along and built up very slowly and the other arrived all of a sudden and prompted them into action. Firstly, these pirates had more money than they knew what to do with. Had enough to sustain themselves for the rest of their lives, very comfortably indeed. But in this tiny little town in the Bahamas, they had nothing to spend their money on. And so the pirates quickly grew bored. It was no good having all this wealth if there was nothing to do with it. And as the months went on, they became more and more restless. And then the second thing was when official news reached Nassau and Governor Trott that the Royal Navy and the East India Company were hunting for a band of pirates led by Henry Every and that these pirates could be readily identified by the colossal amounts of foreign coins they had. After this reached Nassau, Trot no longer had plausible deniability. This Benjamin Bridgman fellow was very obviously Every and Trot had to do something about the situation, otherwise he would go down with the pirates as their accomplice. And so he decided, therefore, to report Every to the English authorities, but not before having a quiet word with Every warning him of what was coming. Every, after hearing the news from Trot, realised that he and his crew needed to make themselves scarce. So he gathered his crew together, he informed his men that the English were on their scent and that it was time to go. And then he did something that was very interesting and very clever. The plan was for the crew to split up and all go in their own ways. And while talking about what his plans were for the future, Every openly told his men where he planned to go and what he planned to do. When people from his crew came and asked what his, what his plans were, he told them. But he told each of them something different. He told one group of sailors he was going here. He told another group that he was going there. Everyone had a different story of where Every planned to flee once he left the Bahamas. And guess what? After leaving the Bahamas in June 1696... Henry Every was never heard from again. He completely disappears from history. There is not a single trace of where he went or what he did. And in later years, when his crew members were found and questioned as to his whereabouts, where he'd been, where he'd gone, what his plans were, all of them had a different response to give, laying down a dozen different trails for the authorities to try to chase up. To this day, we have absolutely no idea at all what happened to Evry after he left Nassau. Presumably, he lived out the rest of his life in great comfort with the incredible riches that he took with him. There are stories, obviously, there are stories, all sorts of stories, such stories that he was murdered here or that he died in poverty there, that he sailed to Madagascar and set up a pirate utopia. These stories became wilder and wilder, and none have any evidence to support them whatsoever, the, the, the bottom line is this, he actually got away with it. Unlike most pirates whose careers burned hot and bright before being cut short at the end of a hempen rope, Every actually managed to escape the fate of most infamous pirates and just disappeared. And the same can be said for most of his men, too, of the 113 members of the crew, only 24 of them were ever captured, and of those, only five actually faced the gallows for what they'd done. It seems that most of them were able to use their money to help them escape. And like their captain, presumably they lived out the rest of their lives in comfort and prosperity as a result of their ill-gotten gains. But of course... A story like this, a story without a proper ending, a story about a pirate who had stolen more money than anyone could really properly conceive of before just disappearing. Well, this story absolutely fascinated people, particularly in England. In the years after Avery's disappearance, the international manhunt for him continued, but nothing ever came of it, apart from the apprehension of some of his crew. And this, of course, only added to the spectacle. When these crew members were questioned, when they had their day in court, their testimonies only fueled the fires of speculation and conjecture as to what had happened to Every. Rumours grew wilder and wilder, stories moved further and further from the truth, and people cashed in on the interest in every story by doing things like, as I say, publishing completely fictional biographies of the bloke, hence why we have such a hard time separating truth from fiction. People actually believed the absurd things that were written about him, like him having set up a pirate utopia on Madagascar. European authorities, believe it or not, at one point seriously considered investigating Madagascar in search of him. In the early 18th century, books and plays and songs were written about Every, and as a result, and despite the government doing their very best to paint him as a villain, as a traitor, as a result he became something of a folk hero, again, a Robin Hood-like figure. And this, exalted listener, brings us to what I think is the most interesting part of the story of Henry Every: the influence he had, the influence his legacy had after his disappearance. In previous episodes of Half Our History, we've talked about pirates like Steed Bonnet, Calico Jack, Anne Bonny, Mary Reed, Bartholomew Robertson, and, and all these other figures from the Golden Age of piracy. All of these pirates were active in the early 18th century, around the 1720s or so. Right, a few decades after Every. And why is this significant? You may wonder. Well, Every, who of course was active in the 1690s, he was. So well-known, so infamous for his enormous raid on the Mughal treasure fleet, that as all these books and plays and songs and whatever else grew in popularity, it made him a legendary figure who had completely captured the public's imagination throughout Britain and beyond. And all of these names that I've mentioned above, all of the steed bonnets and the calico jacks and all the rest of them, And all of those names I just mentioned, right, all of these people were just little kids during this time. Growing up with the story of this pirate king who stole hundreds of thousands of pounds in gold and silver and jewels before just disappearing. There were, of course, plenty of other factors that contributed to the rise of pirates in the early 18th century. The the end of the war of the Spanish succession is probably the, the number one reason. But just as you and I grew up with stars in our eyes when it came to our childhood heroes, and just as those heroes influenced us in the paths that our lives took, it's almost certain that the story of Every and his exploits, his riches and his infamy would have influenced many others into a life of piracy. It's funny to think about people like Black Bart or Calico Jack as as little kids enraptured by the tales of the infamous pirate king, Henry Every, as they grew up. But it's likely that they took these stories about Every that they grew up with in their respective adulthoods these youngsters growing up surrounded by increasingly fantastical tales about this legendary pirate only for them to then grow up and become the next generation of legendary pirates i'm not trying to defend the legacy of henry every filled as it is with slavery and cruelty towards those he defeated But as the pirate who pulled off what is perhaps the most successful act of piracy in history, as the man at the centre of the world's first ever international manhunt, as the legend that inspired a new generation of pirates who in turn gave us the popular conception of pirates and piracy that we have to this very day, you can't deny that Henry Every left his mark on this world, securing his legacy as a pirate king with the greatest accomplishment of all, getting away with it. But that's it that's all she wrote today sports fans that is the story of henry every great to get across a bit more pirate history today thank you so much to brett hasler once again for this uh, terrific suggestion and uh, if you want to do the same as brett and send in your suggestions for topics i love to get them head over to net. use the contact form there to get in touch with me and while you're there check out some of the other things that the show has on offer uh merch of course still available uh, thanks to t public uh there's also the Patreon page. If you want to support the show, gain access to ad-free listening, uh behind-the-scenes stuff, show notes, whatever else I talk about every week. You can go over there uh and and sign up today and get your hands on some exclusive Patreon-only merch if you do so. Thank you so much to all the people supporting me on Patreon. Good on you. And thank you to the people who are out there spreading the word of half-assed history. Um, I do hope you're enjoying Quarter Arsed History. If you haven't if you haven't had to listen to it, do do give it a go. It's uh it is much closer in style and tone to the early days of Half-Assed History. So if you want to go all the way back, all the way back to what was it? 2018 when the show began. Holy moly, nearly five years. Um, you can have a listen to uh to quarter ass history and and get across some of the silly and ridiculous stories that that don't quite have enough meat on the bones for a full episode. But uh, it, it's great to get people's feedback on those shorter episodes and i appreciate everyone who's given them a crack there. they're good fun have a have a have a have a go at them i reckon anyway that'll do it for this week i uh, going to close things out of course with a question posed on reddit thank you everyone for listening back here next week with more nonsense until then this question comes to us from bagel ralph eight who asks if i illegally download a movie in the bahamas does that make me a pirate of the caribbean